1: You're listening to Scaffold, a new podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the landscape architect, Joe Gibbons. Joe is a co-founder and director of the London-based landscape architecture practice, J.N.L. Gibbons, which she leads alongside Neil Davidson. She is also founding director of Landscape Learn, a social enterprise established in 2016 to advance a wider understanding and appreciation of natural processes and the landscapes we inhabit. I met twice with Jo at her office in Highbury, and this episode is a composite of those two conversations. We began by discussing the Dalston Eastern Curve Garden a project created in collaboration with the art and architecture practice MUF. From here, we branched out to a range of topics, including the role of wildness in the city, the importance of fostering a public discourse on ecology, and the evolution of the practice over the past 30 years. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Maybe a way of of starting this conversation is to try and set the stage by maybe starting at the end mm. with um, a discussion about the Curve Garden itself, which to me is one of the most remarkable public spaces in London. Uh, when I first moved here, uh, I kind of happened upon it one evening uh, as I was wandering around Dalston. And um, the only way I can really describe it is as a place of like, Uh, complete and utter enchantment. Um, And it wasn't just the the landscape design itself, it was the way the space was being used. Uh, There was a pizza oven, there was a small pub, there were couches out under giant canopies, um, and the the park kind of just receded, tapered off um, into infinity apparently. And so seeing this space, in the city and wondering like first of all how can it exist how does it operate but how did it come about in the first place mm. so if we can maybe if you want to add to that description of what the Dalston Curve Garden is mm. and then almost forensically I wonder if we can go back and understand what led to it coming into being
2: mm. um, yeah it's, it, it is it's about people um, and landscapes are about people so the landscapes that we're involved in grow out of the people who we engage with, and that's what happened with this. So, first off, we—it was up to us. It was up to Marf and ourselves to identify the opportunity for public realm in Dalston, and this was one of the sites that were that was suggested by local community who had just looked over it, and it was—it was, it was um, you know, it's derelict it was a um, backland site, so it wasn't obvious from the road at all. And, um, and so we, we that, this was one of the projects, the many projects that were brought forward by the local community in our mission or our brief which was to highlight opportunities for public realm enhancement in the Dalston neighbourhood. So obviously there's not going to be an opportunity for a park, it's a very, very urban environment But there were funny little spaces, such as the Eastern Curve. And the reason why it's a lovely curve is because it's an old railway track, so it's got that railway curve to it, and and as you say, it kind of disappears uh, around the corner. So when this space was put forward, um, we immediately thought it was fantastic because it was so close to such a busy road, and yet so had the potential for being... um, so secret and so separate because of it being backland. And um, so but the complications were only half of it is owned by Hackney and the other half is owned by the local um, uh, shopping centre. And so we needed to first of all get agreement that, that this meanwhile garden, which is how we, how we conceived of it, with With some savvy, I have to say that this would only enhance its value in terms of the developers what you could say well what's why would the developer want to have a garden um built on his part of the land and and we uh, what we said to him was um well, it'll only enhance the value of your land and it's not doing anything and um so under this then quite relatively new concept of meanwhile space, we said that this could be an interim scenario for that landscape. Um, of course Hackney, they were, they were interested. Um, but the real thing, the real I think, you know, the stepping stones to where it is now, the first stepping stone was that well firstly that it was identified by the local community, secondly was that When you you see a a site that's backland, we all see different things. So I see something which has a a sort of ecology that is other, um, uh, and something that's got um, a real sense of um, being able to get away and yet you're not far away, and a bit of wildness in the city. Other people just see it as a load of air that is completely out of control. So I guess in in the story, the, the, after identifying uh, the place, we went there and said, this could be a nature reserve. So that's, that's what it went into the documents as mm. a potential, for, just so that we were evocative. Um, but then it, then it needed some way of creating a transition to that.
1: I remember just the last time we spoke that you mentioned that Jane L. Gibbons, at some point, rewrote a brief mm. and convinced city council to take it on, and then tendered for that brief, and just narrowly got the job. so is this part of the package of works that was related to the curve or what yeah yeah, yeah.
2: so the the umbrella w- was um, to look for public realm improvements, which I guess was kind of the public benefit side of these, this big project, probably. And, um, uh, and so um, we felt that the, the way in which the square had been uh, conce- developed as a project was not the right way to develop the, the, the wider um, project of, of public realm enhancement in the Dalston neighbourhood. Um, because we could see that there was a great scepticism, um, anger and, uh, and sort of people feeling pretty disinfected with, disaffected with the process. So we, um, we then, as you say, wrote um, an idea of what the, um, the brief should be and uh, how that could be delivered just broadly and then and then we tended on that
1: there's an incredible amount of risk involved in taking that kind of initiative
2: we do it all the time Mm -hmm. We, we never are given a brief which fully represents our potential as a profession what we can give and there's not much knowledge I don't think about how we approach a project not just in terms of design you see it's in terms of of engagement, mm-hmm. uh, and the process of working with very complex communities, mm. which ultimately, if you do it right, means that that project is likely to be sustainable, which is what's happened at the Eastern Curve. It's a, it's a virtuous circle that's happened from the moment I met Murray and Brian, mm-hmm. where we were on opposite sides, um, to now, where where I've... She asked me the moment she asked me to help to mentor her, uh, and um, and where we support um, them uh, just um, gratis, obviously, to to enable their ambitions to be achieved. So, so that that's a big that's a big circle. Mm-hmm. That's ten years mm. of working with someone to find common ground and find a way of uh, build trust right. together in each other and. Uh, and so that, that, that's quite exceptional.
1: So these two people were, at the outset of the project, political opponents, mm-hmm. essentially.
2: Yeah, they were part of Open Alston. Mm-hmm. So they were angry, yeah. upset, yeah, very upset.
1: And I think like part of this process of interrogating a brief and then um, addressing the wider net of relationships that mm-hmm. um, coalesce around a built project. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, in my head, I like, I think of it as like a kind of soft architecture and that that itself is a kind of design challenge. What I'm most curious about in the context of this particular project, the Eastern Curve, is that soft side of the project and what steps were taken in order to actualize this remarkable space that have to do with, um, um, persuasion, uh, interrogation of what is expected, about kind of refocusing people's um, gaze on uh, a piece of land and kind of exposing its possibilities. And so there's a kind of sequence of events that took place on this site before Mm. it was officially designated as a park or as a wildlife preserve
2: it 's not officially been designated anything that's why it's quite vulnerable <laughs> that's what we need mm-hmm. that's what we need it to be designated
1: open space but so what what happened leading up to i mean its current incarnation mm-hmm.
2: well, from that first step of identifying the land, the next step was to demonstrate its potential and to build confidence in our client body that it did have potential because mm-hmm. really it's it it was hard, perhaps, for certain people to visualise it the way that we could. And and so, um, just so happened that the Barbican were running the Radical Nature exhibition, or, or they were preparing for it, and they wanted to have um, something going on that was beyond the gallery. And so they came to the curator, Knew Liza very well and came went, came to her and said and, and asked her if she had any ideas uh, or could show various opportunities in Dalston and so Liza took um, the curator around a number of the different sites that we've been looking at and and, and he was um, he, he felt that the Eastern Cove had the greatest potential so they curated. Um, appointed Existe, which is a French collective of artists and architects, to take the site on. And they their idea was to build a uh, a mill um, and then with an Agnes Dennis wheat field in, in the garden. And, and what that did is it just demonstrated that change can be positive. Um, it was also a brilliant idea because bread, making bread, is something that every different culture does in a slightly different way and it's so fundamental um, to all of us that it was a great way of bringing people together. And, um, and they occupied the site, so they lived on site for those six weeks and there were thousands of people who came through the door. Um, and we were really clear that we didn't want the whole hoarding this was an old hoarding taken down and opened up that we keep it like really tight and and so they they were in residence on the site, and just by doing that, everyone could just see there was a potential there and so when so that was the next step, and the next step after that was to submit a planning application for a meantime garden which ran on from that. And we managed to create the opportunity for Exist to um, collaborate with us, um, to erect a little bit more permanent structure that was the open-sided barn. So that, that got um, you know, a, um, approval for, as a temporary building. Um, and they brilliantly designed it in a way that it could be constructed with hand tools, with unskilled labour, and that started to engage young people, young adults from Forest Road Youth Club, in um, proper building skills. So there were proper apprenticeships that were delivered out of that. In fact, probably more than Barrett had delivered in a building site worth a building project worth 160 million across the road. Barrett <laughs> is a,
1: a London developer. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. so um, and, and then while Exist were working with this notion of just creating shelter, um, which they did, their idea was, was great, which was to create five bays of a barn in order that you could either take one activity, you could take the whole thing, or there was just gentle divisions underneath that roof um, that could enable different groups to occupy it. And then really, in terms of... Um, our work I, I, I really uh, it was funny when I was talking to the contractor but we, we it was really an exercise of how little can we do and so our main moves were to create a path which we did out of recycled sleepers and which alludes to the railway line that is five meters below the level of the, uh, the level of the park and then to create an ever-increasing density of new pioneer woodland, uh, pl- of trees, that would create a kind of mini-urban forest and then beneath that to, gr- to create the opportunity for growing. And, um, and then for that to drift off into Buddleia, and to leave the Buddleia, because that is a wonderful thing in terms of butterflies. That's why it's called Butterfly Bush. Mm. Incredibly high bio- biodiversity, very resilient, and um, very beautiful in the summer. So, you know, what seems to be a weed to one person, to us, we thought it's there, it's doing well. And, um, and, and then we made it secure. So then we put the fencing around and put proper gates at the end for a vehicular access um, with a compost. So very, very simple moves, working with the site conditions that were pretty awful. So, and then, while we were designing that, the next step really was while we were designing that, was to talk about governance. And I think that was Caitlin... Um, who worked with uh, Liza and I did several workshops talking about how, in what way, could this space be looked after? Mm. In what way um, could it it be um, uh, developed in terms of a local social enterprise? And
1: so who is Caitlin again?
2: Caitlin, um, fantastic artist and architect who works with Liza at MUF. So she was very much part of our team, um, Elster, Caitlin and Elster um, uh, uh, w- during the consultation process. So there, there was a team of us um, from both practices working together.
1: There are some words that cropped up um, in our previous conversation about this uh, project. One is Ruderal, and mm-hmm. uh, one is brownfield. Um, I mean, as an architect. I'm familiar with this fascination that designers have with uh, life as it is, or um, the banal, or boringness, or the everyday. And I feel like there is a similar attraction within the realm of landscape that maybe centers around those words rural and brownfield. Mm. Um, and it brings to mind specific landscape architects that I became enamored by in school. One is George Decombe. I don't know if you've heard of him. Or another one is Catherine Mossbeck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what other landscape architect uh, practitioners working today or historically uh, had that same attraction to um, what, what you've termed uh, as doing as little as possible mm. to a site? Um, like, how did you... How did that become a fixation of yours, or a process of yours?
2: Mm. Well, um, there's, uh, it's where we start. It's where, it's where we start is understanding what's below ground. Um, and in an urban environment, that's very anthropogenic. There's always, there's very few places in a place like London that hasn't been touched at all. Um, and um so the so that innate inherent ecology is is our bricks and mortar if you like it's it's nature um and the realization of the value of urban ecology or urban nature goes back to um william curtis in 1777 when he wrote a book called Flora Londonensis*, and it was appreciating urban flora. So this is not new, and it's definitely, certainly all landscape architects will be looking at the assets that are currently on the site. How you then value those assets require, it, it, it does depend probably on a whole myriad of things, including, uh, your brief and what your client's aspirations are. Um, And I guess in terms of um, brownfield, what's interesting is that um, over since the 70s in particular there's been increasing understanding of the value, the ecological value of brownfield. Whereas the fact brown makes it feel like it's dirt. and Dirt has connotations that are negative. Actually, it's been left alone and it's far more ecologically diverse and interesting than a greenfield which is say what quite a lot of the greenbelt is and um, where it might be being um, under agriculture uh, but quite badly managed in terms of a lot of pesticides and herbicides so ecologically talking Brownfield is actually quite often much more interesting. So, I mean, I think Peter Latz, when he did Duisburg North, he, it was a brilliant project, and that was a lifetime project for him. He took industrial wasteland and t- turned it into a huge parkland where he celebrated the industrial um, archaeology and left the structures of yesterday's industry there. Um, and created a parkland where you didn't try and brush it under the carpet you actually said that's part of the history of this place and, um, and that's, that needs to be um, part of the fundamental concept of re-envisaging it but that you know so that was there's a, a lot of um, interesting work in, in that way well, we don't we don't pretend that man has never been there, um, and we and and we, uh, with a new appreciation because of the resilience of nature, um, we talk about how how we can reinterpret that.
1: Mm. It seems like it's becoming quite central within the discourse of not only landscape architecture but um, environmentalism and. Ecology. When people talk about wild, like wildness mm. or rewilding, mm. uh, previously artificial or anthropogenic landscapes, mm. and I mean, is that uh, an, is that a topic? Well,
2: rewilding is a different thing. That's not actually to do with um, rewilding. is is not to do quite often with urban. It can be urban and it can be rural. It's mm. it's quite. It depends who you're talking to. If you're talking to a farmer, rewilding is to do with allowing um, ag-previously intensively um, farmed land to revert to how it would have been in the Middle Ages, say. So there's Nepp Safari Park in Sussex, which is 3,200 hectares, which is formerly, for for centuries, was, was farmed. Um, very intensively, and Charlie Burrell now, who's, who is a landowner, is, is allowing that to revert, and that's become a huge science project mm. um, on an international scale. Um, so that's one thing. And then there is wildness in the city, in that kind of sense. They're all ambiguous terms. They all mean different things to different people. But, you know, wildness is, I guess evocative of nature, and nature which isn't mannered and isn't managed so much. Um, so uh, you might say there's some corners of Hampstead Heath that feel unmanaged. In fact, the whole of Hampstead Heath is managed very, very closely. So that's also an interesting thing, that even wildness is are decisions that are made through management mm. to let it be or keep certain uh, plant species under control to allow others to develop so there really isn't any wilderness left on the planet so it is to do with how we vision our landscapes how we envisage and vision forward um, our relationship with natural processes understanding where we've interrupted them and appreciating how we can mend or reconfigure that working with nature, and that, that goes back to to Macaig. You have to understand natural process first in order to be know, to appreciate how we've interrupted those processes and what the options are for the future.
1: It's a custodial position. Stewardship. Stewardship,
2: Stewardship is what my profession is all about. Yeah, We're, we're stewards of the planet. Um, and whether that's from a science, a management or a design point of view, that's, that's how we should, that's, that's our whole raison d'etre really.
1: Just looking through your older work and even your contemporary projects, uh, something that strikes me is that there is a kind of balancing between uh, empiricism and poetics, mm-hmm. uh, to the point where you've actually invited a poet to come in and be a poet in residence in the mm. practice, mm. Um, which frankly I've never heard of mm. no, in no, design no. or, or <laughs> architecture before. Yeah. So. Um, was that always a kind of foundation of the way things were run here or was that a more recent mm. decision that you'd made
2: well i think it's part of my dna in a way as well because my grandfather when he designed coventry cathedral he didn't stick art into art into it he actually procured that whole amazing building with a whole bunch of young artists Mm. who it was a very exciting project post-war most of the artists who did the stained glass and the lettering and so on were were right out of college Mm. so my family was i've always been brought up very much within um kind of a world which is not just myopic it's very much to do with design, the full design field, and artists' collaborations. We've always wanted uh, to actually merge practice and theory and not just talk about things that were important, but actually show that we could procure our visions and put them in the ground, which is a real challenge Mm. to a high quality. And I guess it was probably Edward Square where we've, we first struck out and just thought, recommended to the community that we were working there, that, they, they, they should, that the project would benefit from collaborations with um, a couple of artists, one being the newly appointed um, Pert laureate, who happened to be a local resident. Mm. So rather cheekily, I just wrote to him and said, you know, I think your work's fantastic. We've got this amazing project. Is there any way we could collaborate? Mm. And he said, oh, that's just what I want to do. I want to get my work into the public realm. Who was this? This was Andrew Motion. Okay. So um, he came and did a workshop with the local school. We had several really interesting um, discussions. He did this beautiful poem, Straight Off. I gave him a case of pretty good wine and he said it was much better than the Queen gave him and um, and then we engaged um, a wonderful lettering artist called Gary Breeze to etch that into a a low wall and um, it was interesting because the community at the time was saying you know what what do we you know this is a small local park this is surely this is all inappropriate for 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 this kind of project, and um, and I said, I remember it was very late in a very long meeting one evening, and I said, well, why, why does the Tate have to have that, and Edward Square have to have less? Why don't we raise our aspirations? Why don't we have um, engage artists to collaborate with us? And actually, gradually they came round, and um, I had a very good client at London Borough of Islington who was. Got very excited by it, mm. and we managed to eke out a bit of a budget, and um, and that was the first time probably that we'd we'd um, yeah we delivered a project with kind of self-initiated collaborations with with um, artists and poets. Mm. But the Stephen Stephen uh, J Fowler, who's our current poet in residence, it was his idea actually because. Um, we met at uh, the celebration of the centenary celebration of Benjamin Britten at the um, South Bank. It was a South Bank festival. And I was blown away by his. Um, he was talking about um, poets in the 50s that had been overlooked, a whole group of avant garde poets that had been overlooked. And he was so energetic in his. Um, and passionate in his delivery of, not only reciting poetry, but just that whole era, which was the era that Coventry Cathedral had been built in, so my father was also talking at that time, Um, that we struck up a conversation after. And then he just wrote to us and said, you know, uh, how about I be your poet in residence? And and I, Neil and I kind of said well oh, I have no idea what that means but yes let's <laughs> let's do it and uh, as long as there's no money involved and so he started coming over we would talk about our projects he'd talk about his work and it's been really wonderful and then at the end of a year. We just decided that it didn't necessarily have to be one year. It could be two years or three years, and we haven't. And we've developed an ongoing hmm. friendship and um, uh, uh, respect. And it's very exciting, actually. It's there's loads of potential that we, we, you know, there's loads of potential with Stephen. It's just whether we can um, we can uh, encourage our clients to realise that potential. Mm-hmm.
1: Just to give people listening a sense of what a version of this collaboration how this collaboration is manifest in one instance. I was reading through um, this publication um, that you'd put out called Below Ground, City yeah. Silviculture Culture and the Science of Soils that you'd written in collaboration with Tim O'Hare, yeah. who's a soil scientist. Yeah. And then there was work from S.J. Fowler interspersed throughout this it was essentially a report. Mm. And uh, what was so striking to me it was that you had one spread which featured poems by S.J. Fowler mm. about various layers of soil. Mm-hmm. And then the following page, there were tables mm-hmm. um, breaking down the kind of chemical and biological compounds mm-hmm. of the same subject matter, the soil. And mm. it, it, uh, to me it was so surprising and so refreshing to be able Mm. to see that kind of juxtaposition Mm. um, and have one um, format kind of bolster or legitimize the other. Mm. You were saying it's difficult to get clients on board, you know, to think more openly about um, poetics in regard to landscape architecture. Mm. Where do you think you've been most successful so far with that?
2: Well, just all self-initiated projects. So Landscape Learn, we had an evening just um, two nights ago at the Garden Museum, which was called the Taxonomy of Language. Mm. And, um, And we collaborated with Stephen for that. You know, literature and landscape are absolutely embedded together over hundreds of years. Um, I don't know why people have lost the plot recently, because it's a natural thing. Landscape's incredibly ephemeral. Mm. If you're trying to describe what it's like to be in a landscape, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be talking in a language that has to be evocative. You know, you're talking about engaging all your senses. You're talking about dynamics of nature and that really is hard to do just in a straight set of report writing in plain English. Mm -hmm. You can, Mm -hmm. and that's a TFL document, um, but that's not going to get anyone excited necessarily. Um, We think that at the moment with the urgency of needing to understand our environment and the impact that humankind have on the environment, poetry is probably uh, critical.
1: Mm. You mentioned Landscape Learn, and I guess this is a good opportunity to talk about uh, the foundations of that project, how mm. it came about, um, what it is exactly.
2: Mm. Um, well, it's a social enterprise, I mean, we always joke that we run as a charity anyway, you know, the so-called commercial practice, mm-hmm. um, and we just thought, well, let's, let's formalize that and create a, a um, social enterprise where we have the freedom to initiate um, collaborations cross-sector we're interested in the margins we're interested in the places where all our interests cross-sector cross-discipline overlap that's where we believe the innovation will come in terms of the vision for how we see ourselves, this is not just JNL Gibbons, this is mankind, being able to be more balanced part of the ecosystem. And um, so, instead of just moaning about it, we thought we would, um, we needed to do some urgent work to raise the profile of the profession, to, in the light of a lot of schools of landscape architecture, closing because no one knows that this profession is there. You know, there's no very little careers advice in the schools. Um, and yet all the architecture schools are oversubscribed by two or three hundred percent. And yet we know many architects who get mid-career who then realize that their passion is perhaps more in landscape than it is, uh, or similar passionate in landscape as in architecture, and by that time, they're unable to it's more difficult to change direction. So it's really an agile, it's a way of sharing knowledge and being generous about our network, how we um, engage with the landscape and making that knowledge available to professionals or other academic institutions or enthusiasts or... um, young people who are thinking about moving into the career to try and to try and um yeah raise the profile because unless a ro- profile is raised then no one's going to come into the profession and we need a lot of really innovative thinking um right now um and so it was our way of contributing uh to to that and it's an experiment you know we need funding we're cross we've been cross-subsidizing from the practice and that's not sustainable. So, you know, like everything that we do, it seems to be on a knife edge, but in the meantime, it's it's exciting.
1: Mm. I went to the first um, event of Landscape Lauren. I guess it was over a year ago now. Yeah, um,
2: it was exactly a year ago, actually. Yeah, February.
1: okay. Yeah. And it was called Winter Dormancy, mm. hosted by a group called Phytology, mm. um, who run, um, what you might call a pocket park in Bethnal Green.
2: It's a nature reserve. A
1: nature reserve. Yeah. Um, And I mean, at that event specifically, you had invited a whole host of participants, including um, ecologists, a structural engineer, um, a fine arts student who'd done a project on um, the the Great Fire in London. Mm -hmm. And there are all these different, seemingly disparate Um, individuals Mm. uh, with disparate interests that somehow as a group coalesced around this theme of Mm. of dormancy and um, lying fallow and Mm. um, the kind of stasis of the winter period and it seems like the way that these uh, landscape-lorn events are organized have a lot to do with seasonality Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, there's a kind of there's a kind of rationale or logic there that's incredibly accessible, actually, despite the fact that in some ways this may sound kind of niche or specific. Mm. Um, I mean, what kind of avenues has this opened up in the past year, if any, or how has this changed the way you practice?
2: Well, it's more, it's more the other way around. It's more showing this is how we practice Mm. and and we want to share that, Mm -hmm. but we also want to share our network. I've worked with some amazing people or I know some amazing people that I want to work with, we're not given the opportunity, but we, but we discuss things anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and what, we, what I really wanted to do was take issues which come up time and time again, and not just, you know, there's a big difference between management and maintenance, you can say that, and taking care. And taking care is the real topic. Management and maintenance is the kind of technical term that's used in the industry. But taking care means something to a lot of people. Mm. And then we curate um, a group of experts and artists um, to join us to talk about the various different aspects of a particular topic, whether it's dormancy or taking care or liquid assets, you know, whether it's water, whether it's to do with color, whether it's... so these are all topics that have been just, that are part of our uh, life in practice and it's a great opportunity really to explore those, explore the different perspectives and I really enjoy curating those mm. and we don't say where the connections are, we leave those up to everyone to make their own. Mm. And some people might walk away and think, well, that was, you know, like shrapnel that was going everywhere. But most of the time, what's fascinating is people just get it. They get their own relationships mm. and we have enormous positive feedback on how that's opened up a topic, opened up a perspective. Um, and those people might be tomorrow's clients. They mm. could be a member of the community mm-hmm. who will actually be Pressurising their local counsellor for some, uh, you know, piece of open space to be um, brought back into use, and they, in, in a sense, will, not in a sense, they would be a client, but they need the vocabulary. They need to know about these things, and we've, we're professions can be very closed shops if you don't watch out, and and, and we. Most of our work, which is public realm, is to do with engagement, is to do with the way we communicate. And Mm -hmm. so this is a very natural extension uh, of our our work.
1: I wonder if we could go back now and talk about um, your family for a bit. So you grew up around architects. Your grandfather was Sir Basil Spence, Mm -hmm. uh, who famously designed Coventry Cathedral, amongst many other projects. Your father was an architect who worked under him. What was it like for you growing up in this kind of culture of architecture?
2: Mm. It was, well, it was amazing. And, it, and I look back and I um, feel very privileged. And it was very much an architectural and an artistic environment. Um, my grandfather was as much an artist as an architect. Uh, my uncle was an artist, so it was very much um, a broad attitude as well as a very wonderful specific sort of talents within the family as well um, but it was also to do with um, uh, just creativity so there was a lot of um, there was a lot of cooking um, and the kind of kitchen table was centrifugal force. So the creativeness was not just locked into architecture, it was very much locked into the fine arts and into um, cookery as well. Um, And so uh, both my sisters are artists and my brother's a chef and my my youngest brother is an architect and I'm a landscape architect. So there's there's quite a a nice cross-section.
1: And what led you to landscape in particular then?
2: I, I love architecture but I've, I'm very much an outdoor girl and um, put me on a horse in open countryside and that's my, that's my paradise. I always enjoyed um, the outdoors. And um, and as I was growing up, I didn't really know about the profession at all, so it was only because, um, well, when my grandfather and my father worked with um, preeminent Dame Sylvia Crow, and I had the great fortune to be able to spend some time with her, um, age 17, to, uh, to talk about landscape architecture and understand um, a bit more about the profession, and she directed me to the course that I eventually um, got on to, which was under the professorship of David Skinner um, up in Edinburgh, at Edinburgh College of Art, So that was very, very fortunate and, um, and that's how, I, that's how I, I was led to the profession.
1: We might as well just revisit what it meant at the time and what it means now to study at this particular school. Mm and the kind of intellectual lineage mm. around it. So I know that David Skinner uh, studied under Ian McCarg. Yes. Okay, and so was bringing back to Edinburgh College of Art a set of ideas around landscape that uh, at the time and even now remain seminal uh, to the discipline. Yeah. And I think for the sake of people listening, to kind of understand that context, could you uh, unpack it a bit?
2: Yeah, I didn't know about macarg I must say, when I went to, up to Edinburgh, but um, David Skinner, um, who, had st- who started the course, so the course was very young, when I, when I was accepted, I was the fourth first year, or the third first year, and David um, Skinner had um, studied himself under Ian McHarg at um, the University of Pennsylvania. And Ian McHarg was a, you know, very um, uh, magnetic figure, very important for the profession because he wrote this book called Design with Nature which really encapsulated the whole mood in the 60s about the importance of um, understanding our position and our influence on natural systems. And it was, um, it was at a time when there was great awakening about this. And so it was very much an environmental point of view um, and how to engage the design profession with it, within that. So David Skinner very much set up the course at Anver um, College of Art in that same vein.
1: So, after finishing your degree at Edinburgh College of Art, um, you didn't set up practice right away. You went and traveled. You worked in South Africa.
2: Yes. Well, I worked on site, first of all. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I got married during my year out. So, I worked in California in my year out um, in San Francisco for Perry Burr, who I'm still in touch with now, and fantastic guy who was... He himself had worked for Ed Stone, who was another big figure in landscape um, at that time, and so he'd broken away and set up a practice. So it was very exciting in California, and during that time, um, I um, I fell in love with Luke Luke Gibbons, and who was working for my father, and as an architect, and he and um, so we got married during my year out, and so. When I, when I graduated, we wanted to travel and um, we worked on site to build enough money up to do that. Um, so we were site agents on, uh, on a, um, a site in Hereford um, and for six months and then we went off, as you say, to South Africa. Um, I didn't have a job at the time. Luke had a job with, with an a very good architectural practice. I just took the portfolio did about four interviews in one day, got four offers, and then took one and started the next day. <laughs> yeah, it was very quick, didn't really hang about. It was, it was great. And I worked for Bernie Oberholzer and Johann von Papendorp, and I'm still in touch with them, and I hope to collaborate, collaborate with them. Um, uh, and the, they were very influential on the way that I practice. So I, we, I, we, we intended to just stay for six months and then travel a bit and we were given so much responsibility so quickly that we, um, that we decided to stay and we stayed for two and a half years. And it was a phenomenal experience because I was put onto the whole of the Durban beachfront. You know, age 23, straight out of uni get on a plane, get up there and sort those engineers out in Durban and it was just fantastic and you just did it, you know. Um, I worked on uh, a, a, the second biggest township in South Africa called Mdansani where there was rioting going on and we were talking about soil stabilisation. <laughs> so uh, it was, uh, I learnt a huge amount. Um, and. Um, and, and we built a lot as well. And I think at that time, that was the thing that was tremendous because we actually got a lot of experience through realising projects very, very quickly. Whereas friends of mine were still trying to get through that one planning application when I got mm-hmm. home. <laughs> um, because our planning system's so different. So that, w- that was fantastic. And basically what we did, we trialled, Luke and I, well Luke did a trial Um, practice. He left his practice um, early and set up a little practice and then we kind of trialed that, built up enough resources, came back and then set up in 1986 together.
1: So what made you and Luke decide to start a practice to begin with?
2: I think we loved working together. We started, we fell in love working on site so we were doing an excavation and so we were both, both of us, very much brought up holding the bottom of the ladder of our fathers who were doing practical things and handing tools and stuff, so we were very... I was brought up on site. I mean, every single house that we lived in we were on site with the builders, and it was, a very, it was very much part of, of the way I grew up, and Luke was the same. We're both from architectural fathers, and um, we just wanted to work together, so we our work was very much part of our relationship right from the start, and so we knew that we 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 wouldn't. It was a wonderful opportunity to build up enough resource to be able to come back and set up, um, and um, we just thought we'd give it a go.
1: And you've been working now with Neil Davidson for. Um, well, how long has it been?
2: It's actually been for 18 years.
1: Okay. Mm. So, and Neil Davidson is your business partner yeah. at j l Gibbons now. And I remember before meeting you wondering, who is the L <laughs> in this practice and where, where is that person? Mm. Um, and um, if this is irrelevant or too personal, then it can just be mm. cut out. Mm. But um, why the decision to keep the name as it was? Mm.
2: Well, well, Luke, uh, Luke and I uh, were a very good professional partnership. I mean, apart from having two wonderful um, sons, um, we we were interlocked professionally. Uh, we had, we didn't have actually in the end that many clients who were the same that employed strangely. When I look back, that employed us both as the architect and the landscape architect, which is is maybe a bit odd, but. So we had quite different clients, but we really enjoyed, we loved working together. We were, we, we, he was tremendous, a very different way, approach to work. I kind of work away, work away, work away, um, don't know when to stop, um, never quite feel confident that I've got to a stage that is good enough. And Luke would just come along and go, that's absolutely fine, stop now, you know that's great he he was very clear very analytical um incredibly creative at the same time brilliant draftsman could draw like a dream um and uh so we were very we were very good partnership and that set the character of the um of the practice so i remember uh, luke died of cancer in 1995 so we had quite we had three years where the children were very little. We were running the practice and everything was merged together. And it became, in a sense, everything was to do with survival and everything was, was focused. It was a very, very sharp period of time in terms of seeing exactly what we needed to do in terms of our design work and our relationship and the boys and everything. So, you know, there's nothing quite like it in terms of making you feel like you're alive and so when he died um i didn't know whether i was going to be able to keep the business going because frankly the when the landscape part of our turnover was low the architectural side sort of supplemented that and vice versa so it was quite useful and i just had no idea whether I would be able to run a practice on purely a landscape turnover because obviously I'm not an architect, so I wasn't going to go on with the architectural side and then it was just like, well let's see what we can do with this the day after Luke died, I had to do the VAT so, sink or swim and I just thought, well I put nine years, Luke and I put nine years into the practice I'm not going to throw this away and I'll give it a go and so um, Neil arrived a couple of years after that. I was still kind of limping along, trying to make things work. Um, and, um, and, and then Charlie Voss was part of uh, part of the business as well. He, he joined me, he was a great guy. And, um, and so Neil joined almost straight from college. So he also trained at Edinburgh College of Art. And um, and we um, started working together, and I and and that relationship sort of blossomed professionally. And um, at one point, I sort of said, "Oh, do we need to? Should we change the name?" Um, as he took assumed more responsibility and became more involved in the practice, and um, and his view was, well it's got a name, there's an enormous amount of investment in that, so why, why rename? You know, it just didn't seem to be any point. Mm. There was a kind of knowledge about the sort of practice that we were. Um, so he felt quite strongly that we should just continue with the name.
0: Mm.
2: So, so it's really because I, I, to be honest, would have, if he'd said, no, I'd really like to be cut in on the name, um Then I would have, but Neil felt that it had it had some, it it had a reputation, so why why rename it
1: There's something um just very touching about keeping that name in there as well because the practice starts to function as a kind of memorial too, and the work that you do now mm. um is still tethered to this person
2: yeah yeah and um and that and that 's really important it 's important for my boys, who are both designers now well, Orlando's an engineer, and miles is a an industrial designer, but the, you know that root of everything still continues it It, it is important i mean it, because the character of the practice I think was very much set in those early days it was. Um, the same size when I work with Luke as it is now. And very much, uh, I guess you would say, a family atmosphere where we all are very much interested in each other. And so it's been true to itself all the way through. And, you know, there's been decades where there's been, where I've envisaged recently, I've just envisaged it as a successional woodland. So, you know, the the first ten years was a self seeding process of Luke and I, and, and then we created our two lovely boys. Then there was a 10 year period where I was sole practitioner, so that pioneer woodland, um, soils getting a bit deeper. Then there's kind of climax vegetation that comes out of that, which is when Neil and Flea joined me, and then it goes on into um, a successional and regenerative woodland, which is Landscape Learn, our social enterprise, and, and also, um, uh, you know, frankly, looking forward and how Neil and I relate to each other professionally over the coming decade or two. So, and all the time the soils are getting deeper and within those soils are our networks, like mycelium, and those networks support the upper growth and the upper growth supports the network so i've just been trying to envisage our business plan looking forward and i just come to that conclusion that's what we are we're a successional woodland
1: jo, thank you so much for no, your time it's a pleasure you've been listening to scaffold the show is produced by me matthew blunderfield and the theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayworth of the band Stanley Park. Additional music this week is by Vincent Gallo. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold podcast. Thank you to Joe Gibbons. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks.